Future-proof gold from Newstalk. We know that when scientists produce research and findings about the stars and the universe, there's always a level of scrutiny and debate. But that's nothing compared to the reaction and emotion that's caused by research in the area of human sexuality. Someone who knows this all too well is Alice Drager. She's a historian of science and medicine and professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at the Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Alice, welcome to the program. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Let's start off with the term ambiguous genitals. Can you explain what that is and what your area of research surrounds? Sure. This is one of several types of intersex conditions. So intersex is when a person doesn't have the usual male anatomy or the usual female anatomy, but has something in between or something different. So that may mean that their sex chromosomes are different from the usual, or it may mean their insides don't match their outsides, or in the case of ambiguous genitalia, what it means is that their genitals developed between the male and the female type. And so that can mean that the phallus is not a clitoris or a penis, but is something in between. They may or may not have a vaginal opening. So it's kind of a, because males and females develop actually from the same tissues, but develop along two different pathways normally, you can actually go down the middle of that pathway and end up with something in between. How common is this neither one nor zero, this non-binary sort of state as society has seen as male or female? How common is that space in between? Well, to decide the answer to that question, you have to figure out what you're going to accept as normal or abnormal, and that's very difficult to do. But if we look at the case of how many children are born in between enough that a specialist team is called in to try to figure out what sex the baby is, Mm. that would be about 1 in 2,000 births. And if we add in all the conditions, so when your chromosomes are different or there's something on the inside that's different, these may be very subtle things. If we add all of those together, about 1 in 100 people have some type of difference of sex development within their bodies. Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, I really didn't realize it was that common. But even one in 2000 is an extraordinarily high number. It is. And I was really surprised about that because I didn't hear about it at all when I was being raised. And yet once I started looking into it, it became clear that this was sort of a quiet thing known among pediatricians and known among physicians. But it wasn't talked about socially. That was in the mid-1990s. Today, it's talked about a lot more. I mean, the 1 in 100 number would include even people who might not find out that they have any kind of intersex condition until they suffer from infertility and end up at an infertility clinic, they may find out that they have, for example, Klinefelter syndrome, which means a man has XXY chromosomes instead of XY. So some of those things are pretty subtle, but when you add them all together, there's a lot of different ways that sex can develop. So when we look at the causes for some of this ambiguity, as you call it, do we find that people associate with a particular gender because of a particular cause? So if it's something to do with the genes at birth, do people who, say, for example, have male genitalia but are mostly otherwise female, do they identify with one gender or another? Is there a pattern as to how people identify with one gender or another? There is, and it tends to fall along the lines of prenatal androgens, which are a type of hormone that are thought of as a masculinizing hormone. We all make androgens, but females usually make fewer than males do. And so if you have these kinds of conditions and the fetus is exposed to, say, a high level, even though the fetus is otherwise female, the person may identify as male. If you have a lower level, may identify as female. But it's not a perfect match. So there's a bunch of play in the system. And it is possible that somebody can have a particular androgen level but not end up in the gender identity we would expect. So gender is not simple, but it does have a biological component for many of us. 
Wow. I mean, I had never heard of this androgen level, yet essentially, we always talk about what separates man and woman. You're essentially saying, for most people, it's a level of this in our body that determines whether or not we consider ourselves male or female. Well, that's part of it. But we also know that many people will identify with the gender they were assigned at birth and keep that gender, even if it turns out that the gender assignment wasn't in keeping with the androgen level you would have expected. So there's a lot of there's a lot of reason to think that upbringing does matter, but that biology also matters. So I'll just give you one example of um, a case or two cases where we know biology seems to matter. There's a group of women who have a condition called androgen insensitivity syndrome, and they have XY chromosomes, which are male typical. And when they were developing in the womb, they developed testes just like typical males. So they make lots of testosterone, which is a kind of androgen. So they make lots of the hormones that you would expect to have the body turn masculine. But they're lacking androgen receptors in their cells. So in other words, they're, they're missing the kinds of cell receptors that would be able to respond to the testosterone. That's why they're called androgen insensitive. So the consequence is that because of that, they don't respond to the testosterone and the androgens. And so their bodies develop along the more typical female pathway on the outside. So they're born with typical female genitalia, and they have brains that are actually less androgenized than a typical female because most females have androgen receptors. So their brains develop along much closer to the female pathway than the male pathway. And when they're born, most people don't even know that they have anything like this because they look like typical girls. When they hit puberty, they go into um, the normal puberty level, so their testes produce more testosterone. But again, that's not having an effect on them. Some of that testosterone naturally turns into estrogen, so they develop along a feminine pathway because they are responsive to estrogen. And in that population, it's very, very rare to find anybody who identifies as male. So that suggests to us that androgens really matter. And another so, so, case so, I, I, be, I, I just need to follow up on that. You were saying sure. that these women develop as women, but essentially have a biological nature of them that is actually male. Well, they have aspects of them that are definitely what we would think of as ma- masculine. So they have XY chromosomes and they have testes unless a doctor takes them out. They have androgen levels that are high, like typical males. But because their cells don't respond to all of that, most of their body and their brains and their self-identity goes along a feminine pathway. When you say they have testes, is that testes on the outside? No, they're usually not descended. So um, you usually have to have a higher level of testosterone for your testes to descend. And since they're not responding to that testosterone, their testes are usually held inside the body. The consequence is when they... How on earth do we find these people? I mean, it sounds like you're talking about women who look like women and and who act like women and are are born born as, as women. So... How, the how, how, they're found yeah. because they hit puberty and they start growing because they respond to the growth of puberty and they grow breasts and they look like typical girls developing in puberty. They grow feminine hips and feminine breasts, but they don't menstruate because although they have a vagina, inside there's no uterus and there's no ovaries. So what happens is they're 16 or 17 years old and they seem to be undergoing normal puberty, but there's been no um, no menstruation. So they end up at a doctor's office, and when the doctor puts a speculum in, he or she will see that there's no cervix, there's no uterus, and that will tip them off, and then they'll do a genetic test, which will confirm it. Okay. But it's, typic- it's quite often not picked up, actually, until puberty, because there's no other reason to think that these women have anything other than typical female development. Wow. And your job, uh, I suppose, has centered on how people have looked at this, the subject of intersex people and how we've treated them. And I was wondering, from a scientific point of view, are we sexing children the wrong way at the moment by looking at their genitalia at birth? Is there a better way that we could sex our children? And should that inform how we raise them? 
looking at the genitals is actually a pretty good indicator of what happened to the brain because genital development and brain development don't happen in exactly the same way, but usually if somebody's been exposed to a high level of androgens on the male-typical pathway, then their genitals will look male and their brain will also be more male-typical. And the same thing for the female in terms of low androgens will result in more female-typical development in the genitals and also in the brain. So usually genitals are a pretty good indicator, and that's why it's worked so well for millennia, because we didn't know any of this, and yet it worked pretty well, because in most cases it's a pretty good indicator. But it's not always a perfect indicator. So you can have girls born with um, ambiguous genitalia or even masculine-type genitals who have a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And that's where their adrenal glands, which we all have in our backs, make so many androgens that they end up with a masculine typical development in terms of their genitals. In terms of their brain development, they tend to be sort of masculine, but some of them have been feminine. So some of it can be somewhat unpredictable um, and difficult to predict. So that's, that's one of the challenges in these cases for these children. Have we tried historically to medically treat this ambiguity to sort of force nature to go one way or the other. And in doing that, what have we done? Adults have been really uh, unhappy with ambiguous genitalia, historically speaking, and surgeons have tended to be called in and children have been um, genitally what I would call normalized, so made to look either typically male or typically female. And that usually means typically female because of the attitude that penises are fancy and vaginas are simple, which I think is a wrong attitude. I think uh, they're both fancy. Sorry, but, can you mean it's simpler to make a vagina than a penis? Yes. There's one surgeon who trained his residents with the uh, um, idea that it is easier to poke a hole than to build a pole. But vaginas are, in fact, more than a whole. They're actually fancy organs that have musculature and innervation, things like that. But historically what's happened is they've um, tended to take the knife to these kids and make them look more female-typical. And historically speaking, until recently, the children were also lied to. They weren't told what had happened to them. They were just told they were normal females. If it turns out they they had been males, they told them they were infertile females, but they could adopt. So there was a whole system of withholding of information in in here and actual lying to patients with the idea that nobody could handle knowing that they were born in between, so you had to do it this way. Wow. Um, And that led to the intersex rights movement in the 1990s, which is what I ended up uh, joining in the 1990s. I had done my dissertation work on what happened to people labeled hermaphrodites in the 19th century, so the 1800s in France and in Britain, and those, the folks who had been born with those conditions today started to contact me and ask me to help change the medical system in the United States. And it I didn't occur to me it could be so bad, but when I looked at it, it was terrible. And so I thought it would be really easy to change it. And 20 years later, I'm still working with the medical system on changing it. But it's better today. There's less lying. There's better team care. There's an agreement that we shouldn't be doing these surgeries and should let children be raised as males and females, but recognize that we might get the gender assignment wrong. And so it's important to leave tissue in place so that they can decide for themselves whether to take the risks of surgery. Is that the informed approach now that that if a child has ambiguous genitalia, that it's best to let them get to an age where they can tell you, I feel like a man or I feel like a woman and then a surgery is done? Or is the thinking, let them decide, maybe they want to stay that way, but that decision shouldn't be taken from them as a child? Because, I mean, as a parent, spending your first 15, 16 years knowing that your genitalia was completely different from that you were seeing in biology books and and in the showers in, in school, you know, you can totally understand why parents would want to shield their children from that. 
Yes, it's a normal parental instinct to try to make sure every child looks typical and acts typical. I mean, it's why we teach children not to pick their noses and to say please and thank you. It's the same sort of motivation is to make sure that they're socially acceptable. The problem with it is that the surgeries carry risk and certainly carry a lot of risk if you've gotten the gender assignment wrong. Um, And sometimes they take away fertility, they can take away sensation, they can leave permanent pain, permanent scarring. So there's significant risks associated with this. And today, particularly in Europe, even more so than in in the United States, the attitude is that children should be allowed to grow up um, as boys or as girls, assigned with a best-guess gender, which is what we do for everybody is we guess as best as we can, and then let them decide for themselves whether or not they want to take on the risks of these surgeries. So you don't leave them socially isolated. You introduce them to other families with the same conditions, other kids and adults with the same conditions. You provide them psychosocial support. So you're not saying you just send them off into the world isolated. We actually provide Mm. lots of support now. But the UN, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, has made very clear that he believes that intersex surgeries done for social reasons without the consent of the child are essentially a violation of human rights. Um, the UN has been looking at this. The, Swede- the Swiss Bioethics Commission has issued a very strong report saying it's the right of the child to decide whether or not to have healthy genital tissue taken away. So it's really, there's a very strong movement in the direction of saying human beings have the right to decide the fate of their own bodies if there's not a medical emergency. Alice, we've just been talking about the the fascinating world of your research, but actually this book is about not the research itself, but people's reaction to research into gender and, and other controversial topics. Talk to us about the title. Why did you call this book Galileo's Middle Finger? Well, Galileo is often understood as somebody who challenged the Catholic Church with regard to astronomy, and that is certainly true. But What Galileo really did that was challenging to the Church wasn't about astronomy. What he was doing when he looked up into the heavens and figured out that Copernicus was right, that we were not at the center of the world, was challenging a concept of human identity that the Church relied on. The Church relied on their version of human identity being right, that they had the Bible right, that they had their dogma right, that we were in the center of the universe on a still non-moving planet with everything going around us because God made us so special. And what Galileo really did when he turned his telescope to the sky was to figure out that that version of reality with regard to human identity wasn't right. So he was very uh, disruptive in terms of the church's power, and that's really why they put him under house arrest and um, caused him a great deal of struggle and grief. And so in many ways, that metaphor of Galileo made a lot of sense for me to working on what I was working on about scientists today, because scientists today who get in a lot of trouble are doing quite the same thing. They're challenging dogma about human identity and essentially not being burned at the stake, which Galileo was not, but being put under house arrest, mentally, physically, in some cases, being restricted in terms of where they can move without being harassed. So it really became kind of that central metaphor for me. Who are these scientists? I mean, what topics would lead to people who are ostensibly researching a topic and publishing their findings? It sounds like sort of an innocuous thing. What sort of publishings could actually render them stuck in their own homes or or under threat of harassment? Well, one example would be the work of uh, Randy Thornhill and Craig Palmer, who studied the question of whether or not there might be some biological basis to sexual coercion, and in particular rape. They were interested in the question of whether or not, in fact, there might be biological contributions to sexual coercion, particularly when males coerce females or rape females. 
And this was a very controversial idea and still is when they came out with their book, A Natural History of Rape. And it wasn't that they didn't want to support rape victims. They absolutely do. And this is part of the reason that they're motivated to look into this. But at the time that they were putting forth their book, the standard story in the United States in particular was that rape is about power. It's not about sex. And Thornhill and Palmer were suggesting that where rape is concerned, there are issues of male identity implicated in terms of our evolutionary history. And what, what does that mean for, for people listening at home? Because, you know, we're talking about one of those very touchy subjects. When you say it's a part of male identity, what is it exactly that they were saying that was so controversial? Well, Palmer and Thornhill have different ideas from each other in terms of where rape might come from in terms of our evolutionary history. But together, they would both agree that rape is sometimes motivated by sexual urges, and it's sexual urges gone wrong, sexual urges that ought to be controlled that are not controlled and need to be controlled, uh, because obviously rape is wrong. So what they were trying to figure out is whether or not, in fact, there could be sexual urges causing men to desire to rape. Mm. Um, And this is what they were looking at, which is a very controversial idea because feminists, for very good reasons, had in some ways desexualized rape. I know that sounds strange, but feminists, for very good reasons, had started talking about how rape is a manifestation of male power, Mm. that it wasn't primarily about sex. It was about power. And violence. And, you know, the, the... and violence. And the feminists who put that forth did a huge amount of good in terms of putting the focus on the rapist instead of on the rape victim, mm. which historically the focus was often on the victim. So there was a lot of good that came out of that approach. But the problem that Thornhill and Palmer had with it was that it didn't seem to adequately account for a lot of the rapes that we see, which seem not to be about men uh, in situations, for example, of war, raping women, but rather college rapes where it's not obviously about power, but it is about a guy taking his sexual urges to his own satisfaction, disregarding the woman's rights. So they really wanted to look at the question of if we thought about rape as a sexual act, and we thought about it as a sexual act gone wrong, but a sexual act nonetheless, how could we think about the ways in which humans are biological? And how can we think about how to overcome perhaps a biological um, urge that some some men might have, certainly not all men, but some men might have and have it get out of control. How can we deal with that and make sure it doesn't happen or if it does happen, how to prosecute it appropriately? So that's really interesting because there's a lot of pseudoscience out there, right? And I think for the general public, it's difficult to know the motives of someone publishing or it's difficult to know, you know what's right and what's wrong when it comes to, to publish scientific research. And of course, we do have these sort of sacred ideas about things that are extremely personal and usually to do with gender, sexuality, violence and so on, sexual abuse as well. Is it very difficult then for us to hear things that are completely contradictory to what we've heard before? You know, how do we know when someone's research is is just honest, objective research, uh, as opposed to someone who has some sort of agenda, who is funded by somebody else, and is trying to get across an opinion that is in some way hurtful? I think you can't know without other people looking and trying to figure out what's going on there. And I think that that's really important. But, you know, motivations for, for people's work are very important because it can influence what they do. But at the end of the day, what's really important is we look at the claims being made and the evidence being brought forth and try to analyze whether or not it's right. Are they missing something? Did they misrepresent something? Is it replicated in terms of other people's work? So I think it's really important to look at that. You know, what, what's been interesting to me is just this week I got a message forwarded to me by both Palmer and Thornhill by a young woman who had read criticisms of their work in her college class, which portrayed Palmer and Thornhill as being sort of rape apologists, which I would say they're not, Mm. but had only read criticisms of their work and was never provided by the professor their work itself. And she was writing to apologize to them and said she had read my book 
and had realized that she had basically been fed a misrepresentation of their work and had never been offered the opportunity in that class and had never taken the opportunity herself to go and see whether or not what was being represented about their work was true. So I think that that was really um, heartening to me. Let me ask you a question. When the answer can sometimes be not helpful to society in general, hurtful, make things that are clear in our minds a little more muddy and help people who have nefarious agendas, who have agendas that are bad. Should we still ask those questions, even if we don't like the answers? Yes. And the reason is that I think we can't be afraid of finding out what's true about the world. Science can tell us what is true. It can't tell us what to do about that. So when we decide what to do as a culture, we can decide based on what we know and decide to go one direction or another. The fact that the world may be one particular way when we dig into it and learn more about it doesn't mean that that's the way it has to be in our cultural system. So, for example, I mean, we know, historically speaking, that in many cultures, infanticide has occurred, that there's been killing of babies for all sorts of reasons, either when there's been an overpopulation in the small group and it can't handle the overpopulation or because of children with birth defects or because there's been warring between two different groups and they'll kill the children of the other group. We know that historically speaking, there's been infanticide and there's probably some reason to believe that humans are capable of infanticide, but that doesn't mean we can't now set up a cultural system that says infanticide is intolerable and we will not tolerate it. And we have done that. We've done that with regard to men's power over women. Historically speaking, men have had a tremendous power over women, particularly sexually. But we've grown up as a culture and decided that whatever that history, which we can face and understand, that doesn't mean the way it has to be is that's the way it has to be today. So we've managed to change many things in our history. And we don't, I don't think, have to be afraid of the natural world and afraid of our own history in terms of our evolutionary history or our biology or whatever it is. We can face those things. And yes, it may shake us up. It may make us uncomfortable. But we don't have to accept that that's all there is in the world. We also have language and culture and society and law and policy. And we can take all of those things and make sure that people are safe. If you don't mind me saying that that is a a very optimistic and positive and some might say naive view of of science. I think it's very modern, to be honest. But but, but let me me ask you, when we look at the, the lessons that we learned from research by Einstein and Oppenheimer and move on to the present day where we are looking into technologies where we haven't fully thought about the ethics of what happens when we we find the answers to artificial intelligence, to cloning and so on, to think that we should ask all these questions, get the answers and then decide what to do with it. Is that not a dangerous place to be at times? It's certainly always better to try to get the decisions made in advance if you can, but the reality is historically that's not how it works, that it's when we've got the technologies and we've got the knowledge that we begin to really deal with it. That's the way we've always done it as a culture, and I think it's very possible we can continue to do that. You know, the world is getting, I mean, I think Steve Pinker's book, Better Angels of Our Natures, really shows very conclusively that the world is becoming less violent, that Mm. things are getting safer overall, and that that's happened in spite of science telling us more and more about the world, technology advancing, in fact, things are getting better. I, I don't think that we have to be afraid of knowledge. And I think an attitude that knowledge is scary misunderstands what knowledge is. So just one more example. I mean, we know about pedophilia, for example, uh, the sexual attraction to children, that it appears to be a sexual orientation and it appears to be one you cannot change. If we face the facts of that, does that mean we have to accept pedophile acts as acceptable? Not at all. 
we can accept that pedophilia is a sexual orientation. We can accept that it's not changeable and still ask ourselves the question, how do we protect children from sexual abuse? Just because it's there doesn't mean it's the way we have to accept it to be in terms of our social policy or our law. And so I don't think the knowledge is what we have to be afraid of. I think what we have to be afraid of is a stupid attitude that mm. the way the world is is the way the world has to be, that we're incapable of making a better world. I think we're very capable of making a better world. We've done it over and over again. There's a reason I'm a woman with a Ph.D. who wears pants, who has an income, is because the world has changed. Alice Drager, author of Galileo's Middle Finger. Great speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you.